Well, it is a joy to be back with you for another time of studying God's Word and to consider how our lives should be shaped by the eternal truths contained therein. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be during our time together today, and the bulk of our focus is going to be directed to what we find in verses 22 to 33. Acts chapter 17 and verses 22 to 33 is going to be our passage of focus here this morning. So as you turn there, note that I will be reading our text out of the New American Standard Bible, and please feel free to follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Human beings are inescapably religious. This reality is not only taught throughout the pages of God's Word, but it has also been recently affirmed by secular anthropologists. According to a 2019 study conducted by Yale University, every known human society has at least one codified system of religion. Stated differently, when canvassing the scope of the human race, there are simply no exceptions to the rule. Mankind is fundamentally religious in nature. And as a religious creature, man's comprehensive understanding of reality, man's worldview, will be directly shaped by the religious convictions he chooses to embrace. You and I, we have a worldview. We have a comprehensive understanding of reality, and that worldview is going to directly shape our religious convictions that we choose to embrace, and it's going to be directly impacted by those religious convictions. 
In his article titled, What is the Nature of Religion? Dr. Scott Aniel helpfully teases out this inextricable connection between man's religious commitments and man's worldview. As I was preparing for this message today, I found this very fascinating. We'll probably be using this quote at several occasions in the future. I hope that you find it equally insightful as well. Listen to what Aniel says here regarding the connection between man's religious commitments and worldview. A direct quote from Annual. The first major component of any religion is a worldview. A worldview consists of a set of assumptions that a person holds about reality. It is a lens through which one understands and interprets everything around them. Thus, a worldview is a commitment. It's a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions that we hold about the basic constitution of reality. And Aniel continues, Those presuppositions may be true, they may be partially true, they may be entirely false, and we may hold them consciously, subconsciously, consistently, or inconsistently. But at the end of the day, our religion reflects our basic constitution of reality, and that basic constitution of reality is what provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Therefore, Annual concludes, religion and worldview go hand in hand. End quote. As Christians, we have the privilege of being adopted children of the God who personifies, establishes, and declares absolute truth in reality. Because of our union with Jesus Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, our religious expression is tethered to a worldview that allows us to obtain true knowledge of creation and a true knowledge about our specific roles therein. My friends, the Christian faith is superior to every religion, every philosophy, and every worldview that has ever or will ever exist in our world. Indeed, if I could say it like this, the greatest evidence for the superiority of the Christian faith is demonstrated from the impossibility to the contrary. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. The greatest evidence for the superiority of the Christian faith is demonstrated from the impossibility to the contrary. What do I mean by that? Well, it's to say that if Christianity were not true then one would not be able to possess epistemological certainty about anything in reality. If Christianity were not true, we would have no basis, we would have no objectivity about affirming what we know and why we know what we know in the first place. When considered against every other competing system of thought, we find that only the Christian worldview establishes a basis, a foundation, a solidified purpose for believing in the most foundational elements of human experience. Without Christianity, let's go through some of those basic foundational elements of human experience. Without Christianity, there is no objective basis for laws of logic. As found in Colossians 2.3 and 2 Timothy 2.13, the Bible establishes a universal and unchanging basis for why rational human discourse is possible in the first place. What's more, apart from Christianity, there is no objective basis for the uniformity of nature. 
Passages like Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17, dealing with the Noahic covenant, and Hebrews 1 3, those texts testify to the truth that God upholds and sustains all things by the word of his power. As such, what does that matter? You and I can trust and presuppose on a daily basis that creation will continue to function with general regularity and predictability. For example, when we got up this morning, none of us ran to one side of the room in fear that we were going to run out of oxygen. None of us clung to the side of our bedside table in fear that gravity was going to cease to exist and that we would float up into the atmosphere or at least hit the ceiling in our bedroom. Did we? Of course not. It's because we, as those who've been created in the image of God, and we, of course, as Christians, believe and presuppose that the world in which we live, the the natural realm in which we inhabit, it is governed and regulated by a God who has not only created it, but sustains it as well. But that's not the only basic and foundational elements of human experience that Christianity presupposes and gives an objective basis for. The Christian faith also offers an objective basis for why human sense perception is basically reliable. In texts such as Romans 14.12 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, it's said that every person will have to give an account to Jesus Christ for how they live during their time on this earth. These observations confirm, my friends, that human sense perception It's got to be generally reliable. Otherwise, how could we give an account in the first place? If our senses were not basically reliable, there would be no basis, there would be no purpose, there would be no reason for giving an account of our lives. Why? We we wouldn't remember anything that we did. We would have no objective way of knowing that the actions that we carried out in our lives, that we would be accountable to them, that there would be consequences for them. Christianity gives us True knowledge, true affirmation that what we do in this world, how we understand and perceive the world, it's basically reliable. It can be trusted. It can be validated. Perhaps most relatable to everybody who is here today, this will be the final basic foundational element of human experience that we all uh, presuppose and that we all can relate to. But this final one being most relatable, I would say, the Christian faith solidifies an objective standard for human morality. When reflecting on Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, of course, that classic text where the Ten Commandments are codified, when considering that passage in conjunction with Romans 2, verses 12 to 16, which teaches us that God has transcribed those Ten Commandments, that moral law, He's transcribed it on the conscience of every human being who's ever lived. When we look at those passages in conjunction, in tandem with one another, we find that the reason why there are moral absolutes universally embraced in this world, the reason why every culture condemns murder and theft and lying, it's because of this precious truth. And this should be of great encouragement to you today. The triune God of Christianity, the triune God, He has stamped the essence of His moral code onto the conscience of every person He's created in His image. And the final analysis, as we can prove time and time again from both general revelation and special revelation, what God's revealed in nature and what God's revealed in Scripture, we find that if Christianity were not true, There would be no objective reason for accounting for the truthfulness of anything in this world. No absolutes in morality, 
no way of objectively knowing that human sense perception is basically reliable, no reason or grounds for presupposing the uniformity in nature, and of course, no ability to engage in rational and intelligible discourse through the utilization of laws of logic. This is all founded in our faith because we ultimately serve the one true living God. When considering the past 2,000 years of church history, Christians have planted their flag, as it were, on these core convictions. But perhaps no Christian, perhaps no man or woman of the faith has taken as robust of an approach to defending these precious truths about the Christian worldview than that of the Apostle Paul. We all know Paul. I would, I would assume that most of you have heard of Paul if you have any background in the church. Although he was initially considered Christianity's greatest opponent in the first century, he was putting Christians in prison, he was even putting them to death in some cases. Although he was a great opponent of the Christian faith, Paul would eventually become the greatest Christian missionary of the first century, and by the time of his death, he would be associated with more than half of what we find in the New Testament, either by virtue of him writing those parts of the New Testament, or him supervising the authorship of other parts of the New Testament. Over half of what we have today in the New Testament can be ultimately traced back to the Apostle Paul. And as Bible commentators have reflected on the life and ministry of Paul, there's certainly been an abundance of ink spilled on the way he defended the Christian worldview against the fiercest opposition. It's interesting, he went from being the greatest opponent of Christianity to the greatest defender for Christianity. Isn't that remarkable how God in His providence worked to bring that to pass through the life of Paul? But when we consider in the New Testament the many places that Paul solidifies and serves as the exemplar of Christian apologetics, the exemplar of defending the faith before a lost and perishing world, I would argue that maybe the most powerful illustration of Paul defending the faith it's found in the text we're going to be considering during our time together today. It's Acts 17. His sermon, his discourse, his address to the Athenian philosophers at Mars Hill. It's where we're going to be at for the remainder of our time together. In Acts 17, 22-33, here's where we're at in the life of Paul and in the broader historical narrative of the book of Acts in the first century church. The background to our text today. We find Paul, he's, he's in the midst of his second missionary journey. It would have likely transpired between the years 49 and 51 AD. In the verses that immediately precede this portion of the narrative, we find Paul and Silas, his traveling companion at this point in his missionary endeavors. Paul and Silas have been uh, forced to flee from Thessalonica due to being persecuted for spreading the gospel. So in a very real sense, they are on the run, as it were, from being persecuted in one city and coming to another city to continue to spread the gospel, to continue in their efforts to advance the kingdom of God. If we think about it very practically today, hindsight, most Christians, if we were in those circumstances, we'd probably want to lay low for a little while. We'd probably want to take some time to recover from the intense trials we'd just been experiencing. I mean, if I got kicked out of the city, if I'd been forced to run from a city because of my efforts to proclaim the gospel, I probably want to take a few months off, maybe a year off, who knows? Never been in such a, a situation before, so anything's possible. But think about this, my friend. Paul's no ordinary Christian. 
He, he is a man who is on fire for God. His heart has been set ablaze for the glory of God and for the advancement of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. These were at the forefront of his mind. And even though he is in the midst of facing intense persecution, he can nonetheless help he cannot help himself. He finds his driving heart in this part of the action narrative to take the gospel to another group of people. He can't take a break. He doesn't want to just sit on his laurels and say, you know, life's been pretty hard. I've been greatly persecuted of late. Let somebody else take up this burden. No, my friend, Paul is eager and willing everywhere he goes time and time again to see lost and perishing sinners converted and brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we're at leading to these verses we're going to be looking at today. The context of the audience, so we looked at the, the historical context leading up to this portion of the Acts narrative. Let's look at the context of the audience. In these verses, verses 22 to 33, Paul is confronted with a group of Greek philosophers residing in the heart of Athens. These are people who would have comprised the intellectual elite of this region, and they would have had extensive training in philosophy. They would have been people who would have been known to think critically about the concept of worldview, about the concept of religion. And yet, despite their sophistication, despite their learnedness, Paul is not intimidated to engage with these highly esteemed men of Athens. No, my friends. He goes, as it were, into the heart of the lion's den. In these verses, verses 22 to 33, in Paul's engagement with these Athenian philosophers, he sets forth three powerful arguments for the superiority of the Christian faith. Three powerful arguments for the superiority of the Christian faith or the superiority of the Christian worldview. And these three powerful arguments should be of great encouragement to us. And as we go forth from our time of corporate worship today, we should be willing to proclaim these arguments as far and as wide as the Lord would give us opportunities to do so. Let's look at these three powerful arguments that Paul presents to these learned and sophisticated philosophers in the middle of the first century. Let me give you an overview of the main headings, which will also serve as the essence of the three arguments provided by Paul in this text, and then we'll look at each of those headings in great detail as we move from verse 22 to 33. So, first argument, argument number one, if you're taking notes, first argument is associated with verses 22 and 23. In those verses, as we look at verse 22 and 23, I want us to note how false religious expression is rooted in unbelief. False religious expression is rooted in unbelief. Secondly, second argument we're going to see unpacked by Paul. It's going to go from verse 24 to 29, and really it functions as a contrast to verses 22 and 23. Whereas verses 22 to 23 demonstrated how false religious expression is rooted in unbelief, verses 24 to 29 show us that true religious expression is rooted in Christianity. So, heading number one, argument number one, false religious expression is rooted in unbelief, verse 22 and 23. Argument number two, verses 24 to 29, true religious expression is rooted in Christianity. And finally... Third argument, verses 30 to 33, we will conclude our study of this passage by examining Paul's argument that true human flourishing 
is rooted in Christianity. True human flourishing is rooted in Christianity. So with this outline in mind by way of preface, let's begin our analysis of Paul's first argument for the superiority of the Christian worldview by turning back to verses 22 and 23. Notice those verses again with me in your copy of God's Word. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. My friends, in these verses, we find Paul open with two summarizing statements of men's natural religious propensities. We started our time together this morning by saying that man is inescapably religious, and Paul, well aware of this, right out of the gate in his address to the Athenian philosophers, he wants to come out of the gate and say, let me give you two statements about man's natural religious propensities, beginning in verse 22. In verse 22, Paul claims that the men of Athens are very religious in all respects. He, he gives a reiteration of everything that we have discussed up to this point in the sermon. By our very nature as image-bearing creatures, human beings are naturally religious. There is no exception to the rule. You look at all human civilizations throughout world history, you'll not find one of them without some semblance of religion. There is always a sense of the transcendent or a sense of the divine that's rooted and grounded in the very fabric of the human nature. Therefore, when the Apostle Paul begins his interaction with these first century philosophers, he desires to acknowledge their efforts to worship their conception of God. Really, it was a conception of multiple gods. It was a polytheistic culture and context in which Paul is addressing here in, in Acts 17. But Paul is very intentional. He says, I know, Athenian philosophers of the first century, I know you're very religious because I know the state of mankind. Mankind is inescapably religious, therefore you're religious. In fact, I see all these altars and all this evidence that you worship a pantheon of gods. But that leads us to the second summarizing statement that Paul makes here. The second summarizing statement that Paul makes regarding man's natural religious propensities corresponds with verse 23. It's very important. In verse 23, the Apostle Paul notes that the religious expressions in Athens were being done in truth? No. They were being done in ignorance. When we consider holistically the annals of, of human history, the testimony of human history, we find that though man is naturally and inescapably religious, we find that those natural and religious propensities, they're always done in ignorance if left to himself. Sinful man will always be drawn to false expression of religion if left to himself. It doesn't matter how sincere or how earnest one is in their efforts to worship their conception of God. The end result is always going to be false religious expression. And that's exactly what we find illustrated in the text, is it not? You have a bunch of intelligent men who had been well-trained in philosophy. They had thought extensively about the nature of reality. 
These men were sincere people. They were diligent to ensure that their religious expression was genuine. They even they were so diligent. They were they were so sold out to be religious, to worship the gods that they believed existed. They even created an idol for an unknown god just in case there was a deity that they somehow overlooked. That's how passionate these men were about their religious expression. They were sincere. They were earnest. They were diligent. But my friends, though it is hard to conceive of a situation in which man could put forth greater effort to please God than these Athenian philosophers of the first century, what does Paul still say about them? What's the conclusion nonetheless? In verse 23, he says to them, you're ignorant in your worship of God. Your religious expression, though sincere, though passionate, though earnest, though diligent, many of which is commendable, it's nevertheless false worship. Could it be that this experience in Athens is what Paul had in mind when he would go on to write his letter to the Romans after these events recorded in Acts 17? Probably about five to ten years removed from these events, probably closer to five, depending on how you go about dating the writing of the New Testament. These events in Acts 17, I would contend, I would submit to you, I think they directly impacted Paul's understanding of what theologians have called natural theology or general revelation. We find that talked about at great length in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Flip over there with me in your Bibles if you don't mind. I want you to see this. Many of you may be familiar with this text already. In fact, if you spent any amount of time with me over the past two years or so of being down here in southeast Texas, you'll find that this is one of my favorite texts. I, I cite it quite often in Bible study and just in general conversation as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Notice how Paul in this text describes the religious expression of unbelievers. He writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Is this not consistent with what we just saw Paul doing back in verses 22 and 23 of Acts 17? It's remarkably consistent. In humanity's natural state, the sinner suppresses the truth that they know about the one true God in creation, and in doing so, they willingly choose to worship the false gods of man-made religion. So what's the inevitable outcome of the unbeliever's religious expression? It's sinful suppression of God's truth in unrighteousness. As genuine as it may look on the outside, still a sinful suppression of God's revealed truth in unrighteousness. 
And notice what Paul's final assessment of this suppression of truth and unrighteousness is. Notice his final assessment of the unbeliever's attempts to worship God. He notes that it's futile. He notes that it's foolish. And here's the big one for us today that I want us to really think about. He says that it's without excuse. It's excuseless. It is excuseless to willfully suppress God's truth about himself in nature and in Scripture. It is excuseless to suppress that in unrighteousness. You see, when sinful man stands before their holy creator on the last day, all unbelievers, they're not going to be able to appeal to their sincerity of heart. They're not going to be able to say, God, I gave it my best. I worshipped what I believed was the right conception of deity. I did everything I could, God. They're not going to be able to justify those efforts. God does not grade on the curve, my friends. He doesn't receive expressions of worship indiscriminately. He's not content with man pulling himself up by their bootstraps and simply trying to be sincere in whatever they believe to be true religious expression. No, my friends. What we find in John 4, 23-24 from the lips of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this is what God requires of man. This is what God requires of worship. Remember this passage. Very important. Jesus said, The true worshipers, they will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What are the two foundational elements that will be God-honoring religious worship? Let me give them to you from Jesus Christ Himself. Number one, God-honoring religious expression, it must be consistent with the truth that God has revealed in both general and special revelation. That's what it means to worship God in truth. Man's religious expression, if it's going to be honoring to God, if it's going to be acceptable on his side, if it's going to be pleasing to him, it must be consistent with what God has revealed as truth in nature and in Scripture. We must be worshipers of God in truth. But there's a second foundational element to God honoring religious expression that Christ gives in John 4, 23 and 24. It so that worship's got to be from a heart that genuinely loves God. God not only desires true worship, He not only desires right head knowledge and right content and right substance being rendered to Him in the act of worship itself, but He wants it done from the heart. In other words, God not only wants orthodoxy, He also wants orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, right practice flowing from a heart that loves Him and enjoys Him as Father. This is what God requires of true worshipers. And and upon considering all of those realities in light of what Paul says back in verses 22 and 23, we clearly see why he begins his discourse to the Athenian philosophers by arguing that false religious expression is rooted in unbelief. In other words, if you're an unbeliever, you've got no shot at worshiping God truly and in a way that he will receive it is false religious expression now as unbelievers those athenian philosophers they had 
ignorant worship that they were rendering to God. And of course, they had a plurality of gods that they thought they were worshiping. They weren't actually worshiping those gods. They were giving forth ignorant worship. Verses 22, 23. Now let's transition into the contrast in verses 24 to 29. Isn't it interesting that Paul didn't just go up to these men and say, you know what? You guys are all out of whack theologically. Your expressions of worship aren't received by God. They're not honoring to Him. Have a nice day. What's for lunch? No. Paul was not content to leave these men in their erroneous theology, piety, or practice. He was diligent to see these men convert from the errors of their thinking and the ignorance of their religious expression, and in doing so, to be converted and aligned to the truth of God's Word and ultimately to become true worshipers of the living God. Notice what he says at the end of verse 23, and this is a springboard into what he says in verses 24 to 29, namely, that true religious expression is rooted in Christianity. Paul says, end of verse 23, This I proclaim to you. Paul gives these men in verses 24 to 29 a proclamation of the nature and character of the true and living God. Stated differently, since Paul knew that one cannot claim to be a true worshiper of God if they don't have a correct knowledge of his character and a correct understanding of how he works in creation, Paul says, okay, your false religious expression, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of God, it's rooted in a misunderstanding of worldview, you don't have true belief in God, so your religious expression is false. Let me give you the truth. Let me give you what you need to become a true worshiper of God. Let's take a look back now at verses 24 to 29, and together, let's behold how true religious expression is rooted in Christianity as laid out by the Apostle Paul. Notice again, verse 24 and following. The God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since God himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in God we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In these verses... Verses 24 to 29. Paul makes reference to five distinguishing attributes of God for the purpose of contrasting non-Christian and Christian religious expression. Let's take a look at each of those attributes together beginning in verse 24. Verse 24, the Apostle Paul identifies the one true living God as the creator of all things. That's the first attribute we find in this portion of scripture. God is the creator of all things. And by necessary consequences of being the creator of all things, God is an eternal being. 
God had no beginning in time, and he will have no end to his existence. Moreover, since God is the creator of all things, he is also a necessary being. As such, there's nothing in creation, there's there's nothing in all the cosmos that is not utterly dependent on God for its existence. Everything in created reality is contingent on the existence of the biblical God. God is eternal creator. God is necessary being. It's on the basis of this reality which led God, or excuse me, which led Paul speaking about God in verse 24 to say that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. He has no need for contingent reality, for, for contingent realities. He's absolutely necessary in and of himself. He's absolutely satisfied in and of himself. And then he logically progresses from that reasoning in verse 24 about God's creatorship to that second distinguishing attribute of self-sufficiency. Verse 25, attribute number two. Progressing on in Paul's layout of the five distinguishing attributes of God in this portion of Scripture. Attribute number two in verse 25. God is a self-sufficient being. The technical theological term for God's self-sufficiency has historically been designated as the aseity of God. The aseity of God. This reality of God's aseity, this reality of God's self-sufficiency of being, it organically flows from God being the creator of all things, but what it does specifically is that it places a special emphasis on God's independence. Why is that important? Well, God did not create in order to satisfy some need that he had. He, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't looking for companionship. He had perfect, blissful communion in his own being with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God had a perfect communion in his being from eternity past. So he wasn't lonely. He, he wasn't lacking in anything. He didn't have some need that needed to be satisfied that only creation could fulfill. He was completely self-sufficient. So God, by necessary consequences, where does creation come into play? God created simply as a result of his own good pleasure. God created for the purpose of putting his glorious character on display. This is what we mean when we speak of God's independence. This is what we mean when we speak of God's self sufficiency. But if recognizing God as the eternal and self-sufficient creator wasn't enough to contrast the religious expression of unbelievers from the religious expression of believers, Paul goes on to cite a third attribute in verses 26 and 27. Notice those verses again. In verse 26 and 27, we find a clear description of the sovereignty of God. So God is creator, verse 24. God is Self-sufficient, verse 25. God is sovereign, verses 26 and 27. From eternity past, the triune God has predetermined every aspect of reality. There is not an inch within the heavens or an inch within the earth that God does not totally and exhaustively reign over. It's been well said by the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper that there's not a square inch of all creation in which God does not point to and rightfully declare, Mine. I am sovereign. I am Lord over everything and everyone that I bring into creation. As we find championed by Paul in verse 26 and 27, 
God was absolutely sovereign over the creation of Adam and Eve. God is absolutely sovereign in appointing exactly how long his creatures will live on the earth. God is absolutely sovereign in establishing every detail of a person's earthly life. And God is absolutely sovereign in who ultimately finds him by virtue of coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, my friends, contrary to the false gods of unbelieving religious systems, the God of Christianity, he's active in his reigning and governing of creation, and he rules over all things. No idol, no stone, no image, no painting. No false god could actively govern and rule and reign over what exists in the world, but the one true living God does from eternity past to eternity future. As encapsulated in texts such as Psalm 103.19, God's sovereignty rules over all. So according to Paul, he's already built quite a case, has he not, for the character and nature of God, that, that, that he is fundamentally better and, and fundamentally more glorious than those false gods that are rooted in unbelief. We've seen that God is eternal, Creator, He is self-sufficient, He's sovereign over all things. There's a fourth distinguishing attribute found in verse 28. The fourth distinguishing attribute that Paul provides in verse 28 about God is that God is sustainer. He is the sustainer of all things. And again, do you see the logical progression here? I mean, Paul, the, the brilliant man and the master theologian that he was, he's just building an organic progressive case as to why the one true living God is superior to the false gods of unbelief and why the one true living God ultimately provides and demands true worship. He provides true worship by bringing sinners to saving faith in Christ and he demands true worship by virtue of who he is. He has the right to make that claim. But look, God is eternal First being, the supreme being in all things. He's self-sufficient by virtue of being a supreme being. He's sovereign over all things by virtue of being the first supreme being who has existed and the ultimate being who ever will exist. And because of the fact that he's creator, self-sufficient, and sovereign, Paul, in verse 28, can rightfully say, well, God's also the sustainer of all things in creation. Interesting to note in verse 28. Paul draws from pagan sources of philosophy to further solidify this attribute of God's character. He uses, he, he uses a truth that these Athenian philosophers would have known themselves. It's almost as if Paul is saying to them, Listen, my friends, Athenian philosophers of the first century, even pagan sources of religious expression is willing to recognize that reality itself must be held together by a greater power. Therefore, what I'm sharing with you about the God of Christianity, it ultimately fulfills what pagan religious systems of thought and philosophy and religion are all ultimately saying. You know that that stone that you created over there, that false idol, it's not self-sufficient. It's not sovereign. It didn't create anything. You created it. It certainly doesn't sustain anything. My God, the one true living God, he is sustaining all of creation because He's good, because He's powerful, because He's living and active. 
We find declared by Christ in Matthew 5.45 that God is benevolent to all creatures as the sustainer of all things. He causes his reign to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. There are no limitations to God's sovereign benevolence that he extends freely to every creature that he brings into existence. That's something that no false god can do. They're impersonal. They're created entities. They don't rule over anything. But the one true living God does. And that brings us now to contemplate the fifth and final attribute that Paul alludes to in this section. It's found in verse 29 of Acts 17. Perhaps the most important distinguishing trait of the triune God is that he is the personification of truth. That's the attribute. That's the characteristic that Paul is emphasizing in verse 29 of Acts 17. God is the personification of truth. Contrary to the false gods and idols of unbelieving religious expression, contrary to what those Athenian philosophers were worshiping, Paul says, my God, the Christian God, he is a real being. He is as real as you and me. He's not made of gold, silver, or stone. He's not the product of something constructed by human hands. He's not the result of sinful man's imagination. No, my friends, the triune God is none other than the way and the truth and the life. He cannot lie. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. In Him there is no darkness. It's because of this reality. The God of truth is the basis for why true religious expression is rooted in Christianity. If the triune God is true, and if the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to God, no one can be saved but through me. If that's true, then every other system of religion is inherently false. It's contrary to the truth that true religious expression is rooted in Christianity. Think about it. The Christian God is not alive, then he is no different than the false gods of paganism. If Paul's bearing false witness here, he's no better than the Athenian philosophers. His God is no more real than any of those false gods of wood or gold or silver or stone. But my friends, God is eternal. The God of Christianity, he is self-sufficient. He's sovereign, he's the sustainer of all things, and he is the embodiment of absolute truth itself. The Apostle Paul was not only unambiguous in championing these realities to the Athenian philosophers during the first century, but he gives us an example to follow, does he not? Just as Paul proclaimed the creatorship and the self-sufficiency and the sovereignty and the sustainership and the embodiment of absolute truth represented by God himself, just as he did those things, so also should we be committed to proclaiming and heralding these truths about the Christian God, these truths about the Christian faith, these truths about the Christian worldview. We should take them to all those who we know. We should do so with humility, with graciousness, and yet boldness. Because unlike the false systems of religious expression that are rooted in unbelief, True religious expression. It's rooted in Christianity. So we've now worked our way through Paul's discourse at Mars Hill. 
We've been able to contrast the basis for the unbeliever's false religious expression in verses 22 and 23 from the basis for the Christian's true religious expression in verses 24 to 29. But we now reach the third argument that Paul provides in our text. Third argument that Paul provides for the superiority of the Christian worldview. And by way of conclusion, let's look to verses 30 to 33. And in doing so, we're going to see how true human flourishing is rooted in Christianity. True human flourishing is rooted in Christianity. Let's look at the text again together. Verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, when the Athenian philosophers heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. A survey of Scripture and a survey of redemptive history demonstrates that human beings will always seek to do what is right in their own eyes. If left to ourselves, sinful mankind will diligently pursue the indulgence of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But while gratifying one's sinful desire will likely bring fulfillment only for a season, it's not going to provide the flourishing that is craved in the depths of one's soul. No amount of money, no amount of fame, no amount of relationship, no amount of material possession, and no amount of success in this life can ever ultimately satisfy the depths of the human souls. No, my friends, in the final analysis, every non-Christian worldview directs man to establish his own worth, value, and satisfaction in what he can do for himself. But we find the exact opposite in Christianity. That's what Paul's saying here in verses 30 to 33. He's saying that Christianity, contrary to false religious expressions, Christianity teaches that man's ultimate flourishing, man's ultimate satisfaction, man's ultimate fulfillment and purpose, it can be realized, it can be discovered, it can be enjoyed exclusively through trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What's the secret to human flourishing according to the Apostle Paul? What does he present to those Athenian philosophers in the first century? These men who were sophisticated and learned and they were earnest, diligent in their religious expression though they worshipped in ignorance. Paul still gives them a secret to human flourishing. Impossible not to hear echoes of what, also, of what Paul also says in Philippians 4 verses 11 to 13. The secret to contentment Jesus Christ. Secret to human flourishing? It's Jesus Christ. It's through believing in the one that God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. It's through repenting of one's life of rebellion against God and surrendering to His Lordship by faith alone. It's through seeking the things that are above and, and not dwelling, not being defined by, not clinging to the things that are of this world. The secret to human flourishing, true human flourishing, true human satisfaction, is found through union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't be attained apart from that. And isn't it interesting that this is the final principle that Paul desires to leave his audience with 
coming off the heels of his rich theological defense for the superiority of the Christian worldview, Paul reveals that the deepest desire of his heart is for these men of Athens to experience the soul-penetrating flourishing that he himself had experienced as a believer. While Paul was once a God-hater and perhaps the greatest opponent and enemy of Christianity right after Christ ascended into heaven. That was Paul. And he becomes this titan for the faith. He becomes this man who could say, whether in plenty or in want, better or for worse, sickness or in health, richer or for poorer, I am content. I've learned the secret to it. That through Christ, I have everything and more than I could ever need. That through Christ, I know the Father. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, how Paul wanted these Athenian philosophers to come to that realization. Paul was a brilliant man. He could relate to their intellectual sophistication. Paul was a zealous man. He could relate to the Athenians' vigorous pursuit of religion, but doing so in vain. Paul knew about that. He could relate to these men, which is why I believe he makes such an impassioned plea to them at the end of his address in our text of study. And what was the response? Do we find that after giving this brilliant defense of the Christian worldview, do we, do we find that these men, all of a sudden, they just said, you know, Paul, you're right. It's time to repent of our false religious expression. It's time to repent of our sin that we're walking in and to surrender our lives exclusively to the Lordship of Jesus Christ by faith alone. Is that what we find in the text? Well, no, it's not, is it? Some responded to Paul's appeal with vehement unbelief. And some... They responded with a desire to consider what he had shared with greater length. We will hear you on this again. My friends, hopefully this is an encouragement to you. I know it certainly is an encouragement to me. Not even an evangelist, not even a missionary, not even a theologian as incredibly gifted as the Apostle Paul always had unanimous reception to his message. In fact, I would argue that more often than not, Paul's message was was, was a responded to with mocking and ridicule. People would hear what he had to say. He would give a great defense of Christianity. He would give an impassioned appeal for them to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. More often than not, they would reject the message. But we also know that some, they would want more. They They would want to learn more about what he had to say. And there were also others who in God's gracious providence, they would come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So my friends, I leave you with this. Just as Paul did, do not let fear of response, do not let the idea of being rejected, don't let any of that ultimately deter you for genuinely caring for the souls of those who you witness to. Don't let those responses or just the fear of how people are going to respond or think of you, don't let that detract from your task as a Christian to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the ends of the earth and to boldly yet graciously and humbly declare that the Christian worldview is superior to all others. Because it's the one true religious expression that God has declared 
and that God commands to receive. As those residing in the 21st century, may it be said of us that we have have wholeheartedly embraced this Christian faith. Christianity is our only hope to enjoy temporal and eternal flourishing. Christianity is the only way for us to ascribe true religious expression to God. And Christianity is the only superior worldview to be embraced in reality. May may we be resolved to believe these truths, to defend these truths, and to proclaim these truths throughout a sin-cursed world until the Lord Jesus Christ returns or calls us home. Soli Deo Gloria. Let us close our time together with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the God of truth, and it is your very nature to reveal yourself in all that you have brought into existence. We know that the heavens declare your infinite glory. We know that there's not a single fabric of the universe that is not subservient to your lordship. And as a result of these truths, Father, should it be any surprise to us that the content of our faith is the most consistent and the most true way of understanding reality? Should it be any surprise to us, Father, that the Christian worldview is superior to all other worldviews that exist in this world? Lord God, I pray that our possession of these truths and that our belief in these truths, Father, that it would never lead us to pride on the one hand or apathy on the other. Lord, may we never think of ourselves as being superior or supreme to those in this world who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord. And on the other hand, may we never grow indifferent to the reality that every single day of our lives, there are lost sinners who are on their way to hell should they perish in their sins and unbelief. May these recognitions and acknowledgments help us to marvel at your grace, to grow in our humility and to be bold as we seek to proclaim your free mercy in the gospel, your free grace in the gospel, as often as we have opportunities to do so. Indeed, Father, may we be more motivated than ever before to be faithful to the Great Commission as a result of realizing that it is your word that does the work. It never returns void. Your truth will always be vindicated when subjected to the highest degree of scrutiny. And like Paul, Father, may we never cease to be compassionate for others as we take the truth of Christianity to lost and perishing sinners, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May he be preeminent in our thinking, and may our love for him be preeminent in leading us to share that love with others. For we pray all of this in his holy and precious name. Amen.